Well, it's another week of exciting things in Husker Athletics. Not everything's exciting, but we cover it all here on Scarlet Fever. I'm Grant Hansen, and coming off a win, Nebraska basketball laid an absolute egg on Sunday. Luckily, Nebraska women's hoops picked up the slack with their biggest win of the year on Monday. We recap both of those things in our opening segment along with the best thing that we saw this week. Then Husker baseball gets underway this week. Husker softball already underway last week. We tackle both of those and to wrap out the show, we'll give you a look at the Big Ten standings in men's hoops. So it's time to get right into it here on Scarlet Fever. All right, welcome back, folks. Scarlet Fever, Grant Hansen, alongside Landon Wirt. You can follow us on Twitter at Landon Wirt, L-A-N-D-O-N-W-I-R-T, and at Hansen15 underscore Hansen, H-A-N-S-E-N. And what a week. What a week. And we'll, we'll start out like we always do with the best thing that we saw this week, just trying to get things off on a positive foot. Uh, maybe you learned something new about us. And uh, we'll start with Landon, and before we talk... Husker hoops, and there's a very interesting dichotomy there, and that'll be a very fun discussion, so I'm excited to get into that. But first, the best thing that Landon saw this week was... Yeah, the Super Bowl. It was, what an oversight on our part that we just went an entire show uh, without mentioning that the Super Bowl is this weekend. I, it's kind of hard. I know I, I probably would have been talking about it more had the Chiefs been in it, but right. uh, it was still a really awesome game. It kind of snuck up on me, I will say, and I think a lot of people echoed these sentiments, that last Sunday didn't necessarily feel Super Bowl-y. Mm. I don't know what it was. Uh, but, you know, by the, the time the game got rolling and got around, it was an awesome watch. Uh, I did not like the commercials. I will put that out there. It seemed like every other one was either for cryptocurrency or an electric car. Um, no matter how those commercials started, it always ended up at crypto.com or Kia with our new electric car. Um, but the game was really great. Uh, it was great to see two good teams go back and forth. Um, I really enjoyed the outcome personally as someone that was kind of preying on the Bengals' downfall after uh, not only the fact that they beat the Chiefs, but the manner in which things ensued on social media after the Bengals beat. Yeah, um, you know, saying it without saying it. Um, It was very, very fitting to see the, the last touchdown Matt Stafford pick on him a little bit. Um, I'm really happy for guys like Matt Stafford and Cooper Cup and Aaron Donald. Um, Donald and and Cup have been mainstays of, of the Rams for a while. And then, of course, the, the Matt Stafford story is pretty inspiring. Kind of slaved away his career in Detroit. And finally, after all these years of neglect, uh, asked to be traded and, you know, was it fortunate enough to be put in a great situation. I like Sean McVay. He's a great young coach. Uh, The Rams just have a lot of likable folks, um, OBJ included. It was really a bummer to see him go down with a knee injury, but it was a great game, and I thought a perfect way to cap off a really great uh, 2021-2022 NFL season. So I enjoyed the Super Bowl a lot. Yeah, I think part of the the way the discussion around the quality of the game is shaped is all the playoff games that came before. And, you know, this game was not as good as any of those. But I think the the playoffs that we saw this year in the NFL were some of the best that I can remember. I mean, every literally with the exception of the Rams' first game against the Cardinals, uh, that was a total blowout on Monday Night Football wildcard weekend, every game was good. Yeah. And that's kind of rare. Uh, and, and so I think that kind of shapes our perspective on the game itself. When it comes to the commercials, I agree. I felt like we were really getting hammered on the whole, like, buy an electric car and buy crypto. Buy it with crypto. (laughs) Um, The one crypto ad that I thought actually was pretty good was the QR code ad. Yeah. I was a fan of that. That was very creative. That was was much talked about. (laughs) That was the first... um yeah, Monday afternoon. That was the, in, in my ad PR class. That was like the first thing our professor talked about. Yeah. Like, Did you guys scan the code? I'm like, yeah, I scanned the code. Um, was it smart? No, probably not. But uh, you just can't sit at that thing just like bouncing around on your screen for thirty seconds. I'm like, okay, like. I'm biting. Like, what is this about? I know. Um, that little did we know that that was going to set a trend for a bunch of other, like the LeBron one. Like, how did that? How did that the one LeBron cool. one end up being a crypto one? I liked that commercial. How? How? Until it, yeah, until it was crypto. I know. I was like, okay. It was wild. Though, like seeing that and like how, like it wasn't you know perfect, 
But how close it was yeah. to what he actually looked that was like freaky. when he was in high school. <laughs> that was really freaky. Yeah. Well, it had to have been crazy for him, too, I think, in some ways. Uh, so that one was really interesting. I It sucks because, like, some of the, like, funny ones, like, I couldn't hear because there were, like, 15 people in our apartment. Yeah. Uh, and so there was not a whole lot of listening. Excuse me. Going on. Uh, but pretty good wide range of commercials. It was not, like, ah, gosh, it is just... There have been ones that, like, stick in my mind. I, As far as ones that, like, get an actual laugh out of me, it's been a long time since we've had good commercials, I feel like. It's yeah. been a series of duds. I think the one that, like, sticks out to me is the, like, killer commercial was uh, Super Bowl 50 Puppy Monkey Baby. Yeah. That one is – Yeah. <laughs> that one's out there as a winner for me. Doritos but. had some good ones in Super Bowls past. I don't, yeah. I can't recall whether or not they had well, one like in the, this the, uh, Super Bowl. The one with the ultrasound and the baby like reaching for the Doritos yeah. from inside. Those yeah. are pretty memorable. Yeah, I agree. Uh, so I'd have to rack my brain a little bit. I, I, I with Super Bowl commercials, I remember them if I see them, but uh, until then, I mean, I don't know. There's a lot of like, like the the Miley Cyrus and Dolly Parton like singing about phone. I'm just like some of this stuff's just lame. Well, and yeah, yeah, no, that one was just weird. Uh, and. So yeah, yeah, it was interesting. Um, I I thought there that moment where both like Burrow and Stafford went down on separate series and they both came back. It was weird because you both had to think like for a second for both teams, who's their backup quarterback? <laughs> I know and, that's just because I'm a NFL junkie. Yeah, but yeah. I think I think I rem- ended up remember. I don't remember. It would have been funny if we. Got a battle of John Wolford v. Kyle Allen down the that, yeah. down the stretch. That would, that would have just been woeful. But they both came back, which you know, true to form. And you know, like I said, and not on this, maybe not on this show, but it was very hard for me to pick a team because I'm so used to rooting against people in the Super Bowl more than rooting for people. And this, it was very easy to root for both sides. With the exception of the guy who uh, came onto the field in flip-flops uh, off the bench when the Bengals got a turnover. And Eli Apple. I really can't stand him. Yeah, Vernon Hargreaves. I would not be surprised to see that man cut in the offseason. It didn't end up like having a super big impact on right. him. But then again, I mean, kind of costing field position a little. I mean, a little. It ended up being a touchback from the 10. But still important, especially as you're uh, – as you're going and trying to get some points late in the first half, so that was that was woof, uh, real big oversight on on his part. But yeah, I agree. It's two likable teams, which is definitely different from past Super Bowls. You know, I I can't speak to national perception on the Chiefs, but um, they, I mean, I you know I can remember a lot of Super Bowls, especially in my youth route against Tom Brady and and things. So that definitely was refreshing for sure to see on Sunday. Yeah, it was. And and one last note on there. I think there's or actually two last notes. People were making a lot of the offsides or rather the false start on the touchdown pass that should have wiped out the holding. I think there are two calls that were made that were bad by this officiating crew. One was the opening touchdown of the second half to T Higgins where he face masked Jalen Ramsey. That led to a touchdown for the Bengals. The other one led to a touchdown for the Rams, which was the missed false start that wiped out the hold, which was kind of a suspect hold on the Bengals. So it was a wash, in my opinion, there. A lot of people make a lot of note of that last play because it's the last play that people remember. It's the play that sticks in their minds. It was a, it was a wash. I don't think that officiating decided the game at all. Right. And if you, if you do, I mean, down the stretch, the Bengals just, like, they couldn't cover Cooper Cup. And credit, I mean... In that position, the the hold on the Bengals that was called on the third down, McVeigh and the Rams offensive staff did a really good job at getting Cup in a position to get matched up one-on-one with a linebacker. Yes. So even anything suspect in that situation is going to look like a hold, even if it may be a little ticky-tacky. If you reach that hand across, even if you're not making much contact, officials are going to look at that because it's a linebacker covering Cooper Cup. Like, that's the most important player on the field, arguably, now, and the game's most important play. So, I mean, I think there's some credit there for for scheming that situation up for Cup, but I don't really think that officiating ultimately decided who won and lost. Now the last note, and uh, it was interesting. Got to give credit here to for the generational difference uh, to John Bishop, graduate of this college and host of Unsportsmanlike Conduct on 1620 The Zone in Omaha, 
But John mentioned the, uh, I think it was the 2000, 2000, no, the 2001 Super Bowl, which was Rams and Patriots. Yeah. And in that Super Bowl, all the commercials that were marketed were the dot-com commercials for all the (laughs) dot-com websites. And that's why it was called the dot-com Super Bowl in some ways by some people. I get the same vibe here with the crypto and the electric cars. Yeah. I, I think, and it at least had this effect on me. I think all the people saying over and over and over, buy electric cars, buy crypto. And maybe the electric cars have a longer lifespan than the crypto, but it basically had the opposite effect on me where I'm like, no, no, yeah. you're basically telling me to buy all these things. Very, It was very heavy-handed. Yeah. Last note for me, shout-out Aaron Donald, one of the greatest NFL defensive players of all time. Fantastic Super Bowl. Mm. Uh, if it really is a career, yep. um, I don't know if it will be or not. Very much enjoyed watching that man play. He w- went to another human level in the second half of that game, and just the way he is able to move grown men is something I don't know if I'll ever see another NFL defensive tackle do in my life. So yeah. his performance was sick. I hope he isn't done, but yeah, he may be. I, yeah. So there you go. Super Rams Bowl. win the Super Bowl. Uh, I'll keep my best thing short because we're already at 10 minutes here. We're just flying along. <laughs> Uh, my best thing, I, I've been, so last week I mentioned an HBO show, Succession, fantastic. Still not through season three yet, but I'm going to get there. Uh, there's another HBO show I've been watching, and that show is called Peacemaker. And Peacemaker obviously is fairly R-rated, but uh, I love the soundtrack. And it's directed by James Gunn, and it's very different than his Guardians of the Galaxy soundtracks, which are kind of all like 70s and golden oldies sort of songs. And I know some people uh, who are in the older audience potentially listening are rolling over uh, me calling some of those songs from the 70s and 60s golden oldies. But uh, nonetheless, uh, this song, this soundtrack is very different. It's all like glam rock, uh, hairspray from the 80s, and uh, and grunge rock. <laughs> and so it's it's good. I, I enjoy it a lot. I've been listening to it a lot. Uh, it's... I've also kind of found, as I've talked to some people, that it's a very unique sort of thing. Uh, And not everybody likes it, even people who liked glam rock in the 80s. So, very interesting. It it is interesting for me for the generational differences on how some of that music is perceived. And, like, the Hairspray, like, era was not very long. Like, it lasted. It was very, very brief. Uh, But it went out. It went out in just fantastic fashion. Anyway... So there you go. There's my best thing. Very short. Time to get to some Husker hoops, and we'll start with the bad uh, first. Men's basketball, I got two interesting questions for you here, and then we'll move to women's hoops. Uh, men's basketball team loses to Iowa handily. It only ends up being a 23-point loss, but that's kind of surprising. I, and maybe it's recency bias, but this feels like this is one of the worst of the six embarrassing losses that they've had this year. The fact that they went on a 20-5 to run in the second half and still were down 20 points, uh, it was it was just, it was really bad. And it was shocking, especially considering what they were able to put together uh, against Minnesota on Wednesday and what we were able to talk about there last week's podcast with Gavin. So let, let's, I have two questions for you here. We'll start with the first one, which is a little bit more applicable to what we have now. Uh, so for me, it's effort. And when I was writing my takes on this week, I, that was the biggest thing to me. It is a hundred percent effort for this team. I think, because you look at what they were able to do defensively against Minnesota and Iowa and Minnesota are not that far apart. They've been in close games this year. I, still I don't th- understand. I, I still think Minnesota sucks. I'm going to go on I mean, the record that's and say it. I think Minnesota and Nebraska are the two worst teams in the Big Ten. But they're capable of beating Penn State, who beat Michigan State last night. Yeah. So, I mean, it's... I, I will never get... I'm I'm never going to stand behind Minnesota. And I do think if Minnesota keeps winning some of these fluke games and Nebraska plays them in Indy, I think Nebraska will beat them. Anyways, sorry. No, no. I, I mean, I I would I could totally see that happening. So, my, my thing is they force 18 turnovers. They had... Excuse me. Against Minnesota, they forced nine against Iowa. Uh, they had, I believe, twice as many turnovers. I don't remember the exact number. I have it noted down somewhere. Uh, but it it was just this this cascade, uh, especially late in the first half. They're up fifteen to eleven. 
Then it's a 33 to six run. I believe it goes as high as 42 to 10 at one point. Uh, and it all starts with turnovers, and then they basically just shut down. I, I mean, everything that they did right against Minnesota, where they're they're executing, they're taking good shots, uh, they're valuing the basketball, they're forcing turnovers on the other end and staying disciplined, it all goes out the window. To me, it's effort. What sticks out to you? Well, I'd like to first note this, that under Hoiberg, <laughs> Nebraska has just been getting demolished at Iowa. This isn't like a, a this year thing. It's I don't so you know, Hoiberg's first year, Nebraska loses 90 96-72 um to Iowa at Carver Hawkeye. I was at that game. It was horrendous, similar to what happened on Sunday. In twenty twenty one, Nebraska loses one hundred and two to sixty four at Iowa. That uh, came after a two-game Big Ten winning streak, which is the only multi-game win streak in the Big Ten of of Hoiberg's tenure. And then this year you have the the 98-75 loss. So Nebraska has lost by 20 points consistently uh, when when it plays at Iowa. So I think that might have to just be factored into some of it. Maybe it's you know when things go off the rails quickly in a hostile road environment. Maybe they. But I do think it's a lot about mentality. I mean we've seen it a lot when. Things aren't going well, and you go, and they aren't going well early. You can almost know within the first ten minutes of a game whether or not the game's going to be competitive. Right. And the to me, that's really a problem when you have a different cast of players year after year after year. I don't know if it it speaks to mentality. I don't know if it's a trend in recruiting that's not being picked up. But I mean, you see it like it happens at Rutgers this year. It happens at Purdue. Uh, you know, Rutgers and Purdue, Purdue especially, you know, one of the better teams in the conference, obviously. Um, but you know, they've they've been they've proven vulnerable at home. It's it's really worrying. I mean, then you see it against Northwestern too at PBA as well as Michigan at PBA. You know, within the first ten minutes when things are just not really skimming along as perfectly as they would like. I mean. You know, Nebraska can overcome those things like when it starts struggling against like Tennessee State or South Dakota in the non-con. But when some of those things persist, you know, the big teams in the Big Ten aren't going to allow for that to happen. So I do think it's probably part effort. I think one of my central critiques of this team has been I'm not really sure if there's enough leadership. And, you know, you have guys like Derek Walker, which is great. He's obviously a, a focal point. But I don't. I you just need more guys like him if this really is a player-led culture, and you know one guy can't make that click when things aren't running smoothly like they need to be, and when you you know you've lost all these games and your season doesn't really have any potential, you know hope or outlook or any sort of positivity. It can be easy to shut down, but you need players in that instance to step up. And to just kind of roll over and die like that again, I mean, those, these performances are bad enough to happen, like, twice in a season. Like, right. if, if, if things like this happen, I would probably say two times to three times a season an absolute maximum. Like, I get it. College basketball is a grind. There will be days where sometimes your team just doesn't have it and you get just blown off the floor. It happens to the best of college basketball teams. Like, heck, Purdue just lost by 25 at Michigan last week. It happens. But when it happens six times in a season now, I mean, what? Are we at six? Michigan, Auburn, Northwestern, Iowa, Rutgers. Yeah, six. When it happens that many times, then there starts to be a little bit of an issue because Nebraska's played what? 25 games so this is basically happening once every four times Nebraska steps onto the court that is a problem and that it comes down to whether it's preparation or on-court leadership those sort of performances are unacceptable happen a couple times a season when it happens six there's something there um and I think that my central um, critique on that front would be um, leadership and overall preparation let's take the uh, second take that I had in that piece and uh, we'll wrap up our Husker men's hoops discussion with this because I, I think this is an interesting discussion. I don't think there's a whole lot of change, you know, in this. I think it's pretty set. I, th- I believe Bryce McGowan is going to move on after this year no matter what. But I think it still is interesting to discuss what Bryce McGowan's should do. Now, there's two sides to this argument. There's the first side that says, okay, yeah, no, he should not stay. Go get his money. Delano Banton made it to the league. This staff was able, with their connections and with their development, uh, to get Delano Banton on an NBA roster, drafted ahead of Luca Garza. All right, so that's that's you know important. 
Bryce is obviously better than Delano Banton. He's going to find a spot. The other side, uh, um, and of course staying at a team like Nebraska that isn't winning, is <laughs> it's, it's kind of a waste of time. So uh, on the other side, though, you had the argument for him staying, and those are mostly external in Jaden Ivey, uh, a guard at Purdue who is now a sophomore, a huge jump for him from his freshman to sophomore year. Even Keegan Murray, same thing. Playing in a league like the Big Ten, there's still a lot to be learned and earned if you stick around another year and continue to play in this physical league and see what kind of jump you can make. And you could play for Trey McGowan's senior season. So, And I would assume Trey McGowan's will also be sticking around to wrap up his career at Nebraska, mainly because you only, you've already used that uh, one-time waiver to transfer. And, and so after that, you know, you have to sit out a year. I don't know if he's willing to do that. Maybe he is. But, you know, you, you can you can finish out Trey's career and you can end your career here at Nebraska if you're Bryce and then move on. So there's two sides. I think he's going to leave either way. I think he's going to go get the professional money. I don't think he likes losing. And I think he's producing enough currently and winning enough uh, Big Ten Freshman of the Week awards that he's going to be satisfied. But what say you? Where do you come down on this? Yeah, I think that there's a couple of things you have to consider. Most you mentioned, some you didn't. I think that one thing that's going to be important to weigh is what Nebraska does after the season ends and potential turnover. I don't know a ton, honestly, about Nebraska's incoming recruiting class, but I do know that Ramel Lloyd Jr. out of Sierra Canyon is a similar-ish type player. Uh, an athletic wing type, you know, highly touted from a great program like the one at Sierra Canyon that can do, I think, a lot of similar things to what Bryce McGowan is doing. So I think that something that needs to be considered there is what Nebraska's overall roster construction could look like next season. Um, You know, you never want to have too much of one thing on your roster because then you have nothing ultimately. So I think that something that's going to be important to weigh is what, you know, Fred Hoiberg, should he return, which it's looking like he is. Things have been kind of quiet on that front. Excuse me. And Matt Abdelmacy's plans are for next year, as it, you know, as it as it pertains to the team's overall roster. I think that right now Bryce McGowan's is probably going to go anywhere in the twenty to thirty-five pick range. Uh, so middle late first round to late first round to early second round, not a bad place to end up. I mean. Heck, you even see guys like Io DeSumo, who was an early second-round pick, I think, having a great rookie season for the Bulls. So there's, you know, definitely an avenue to early NBA success from, you know, those later rounds of the draft. But I just don't really see much upside in him staying, personally. I think that you made a lot of good points. I think that, you know, I don't really know what Nebraska will look like next year. I'm kind of done prognosticating how things could go because – I don't really know anymore what's going to happen next year. Um, I think there are way too many unknown variables, and there's a, a pretty high likelihood that a season like this will happen again. Maybe not this bad, uh, but I think that there's more risk of staying and you know suffering through the same slog as opposed to trying to tackle a new challenge when he's already proven what he can do at the Big Ten level. So that's where I stand on the Bryce McGowan's issue. It really has been a you know you know if this really is we're we're approaching the last two home games of his Husker career. It really has been a pleasure covering him and watching him play. He's super talented. Uh, but to me, I see these upcoming two home games as the last two of his Nebraska career. And I tend to agree. Last projection I saw, he was going to the Golden State Warriors at 29. That would be... A, that would be... <laughs> that's that's another thing you have to consider, too, is organizational fit. Because you do get a lot of feedback early on in that draft process. And there, if you do, are going to a team late in the first round, it's a playoff team. Right. Uh, where you can get a lot of good development, probably a lot of good coaching. Um, and so organizations like that... Oh, there's a lot of organizational structure in place. That seems like that would be a good thing for him also um, at this point in his career. Well, let's flip over to Husker Women's Hoops, who picked up the slack on Monday, coming up with a huge win yeah. over number 5, Indiana. Net ranking is the only ranking that matters, or at least I'm sure. <laughs> there. Are, well, I mean, technically it is. Uh, but net ranking-wise, Nebraska moves up to number 18 in the country. There are only three teams in the Big Ten ahead of them, and they've beaten two of those three by 20 points, Michigan and Indiana. Maryland is also ahead at 19-6. and six. They're 14th in the net rank. Nebraska, of course, 18th. Indiana, 17. Michigan is 
15. So Husker women's hoops positioning themselves well for the NCAA tournament. ESPN's bracketology did not see them go up too far with the victory. They're up to a 7 seed. They were a 7 seed, but now they're the highest 7 seed, so right on the edge of a 6. If they continue to win throughout the rest of the regular season, they'll likely finish a little bit higher than 7. And those projections, of course, they don't mean a whole lot. Um, you know, it ultimately will come down to a committee decision and not a computer simulation. So Penn State, Minnesota, Wisconsin, Northwestern all remain in the regular season. I think Minnesota and Northwestern are probably the biggest red flag games, but both of those games are at home. I was there Monday night. Got to give a shout-out, too, to Indiana's Grace Berger. 20 points for her. Uh, wow. Like, she took a shot to the face in the second half. Uh, and came right back, and she was, yeah, she continued to be fantastic. Nebraska really couldn't find much of an answer for her and her filthy uh, mid-range jumper. But four Huskers finish in in double figure, excuse me, Jazz, oh my God, I just can't talk. Jazz Shelley, Sam Hybe, 14 each. Izzy Bourne and Alexis Markowski with 10. Alexis Markowski, another double-double, leading the team in rebounds with 15. Uh, She has just been amazing this year, but... Huge win. Actually, five. Five Nebraska players finish in double figures. Allison Widener, too, another freshman, another Nebraska native, coming in with 11. So, huge win for the Huskers, and now you just got to take care of business against the teams that remain on the schedule who are unranked prior to the Big Ten tourney. Yeah, I mean, what a win. We talked about it last last episode that this was like the game of the season. You know, Nebraska had that win over Michigan on its resume, but you know, in its next battles against top-ranked competition, it seemed to always fall short. You had the two losses to Iowa, and and Caitlin, you got Caitlin Clarked twice. Right. Um, you know, the losses to Maryland and Ohio State weren't particularly close. So Nebraska really, really, really needed a night like Monday night, and it was able to deliver. And the thing that I found pretty encouraging, too, was that in the past, I mean, Grace Berger is one of the Big Ten's best players, right? And in past outings against scores of similar capability, whether it's, you know, Michigan State's can't recall her name she had like 30 points against Nebraska or like Caitlin Clark Nebraska had seemed to really struggle not only score slowing down that score but the rest of the offense as a whole and what is really impressive to me is that outside of Grace Berger's 9 of 15 from the field I mean the rest of Indiana combined to shoot like 15 for is my math right? 15 for 14 for 55. Yeah, I believe it was like one 14, made three pointer. Yeah, 14 for 55, one made three pointer. So, I mean, that strategy. Two. Of, okay. Two. Let your Sad. yeah. Let your let your scorer get theirs, and we'll just shut down the rest of your offense. Oh, that worked really well. I mean, you know, Indiana's other two double figure scorers shot 14, four of 18 and four of 16, respectively from the field. So Nebraska's defensive effort really, really should be commended. And that, to me, was the the most impressive takeaway from that because Nebraska's defense was good in non-conference play, and I think that its non-conference schedule is ultimately what's kind of dampening a little bit of its national outlook a little bit because it it was weak, and there was a good reason for it to be weak because we weren't really sure what this team could be. But we still hadn't seen that top defensive effort yet uh, against a top Big Ten opponent and to be able to slow down a team like Indiana and hold them to eight points in two separate quarters, that's just inc- it, it's remarkable and a, a huge huge credit to Amy Williams' team because man, what a win and it needed that in the worst possible way Yeah, it did and, and you know, it, it was a, a reverse really of last year, we had talked about it where they had struggled against ranked teams and, and some of it there was just some unlucky play in those games did not shoot very well against Ohio State or Maryland uh found yourself you you were up against Ohio State from the majority of the first half and then the Buckeyes go on a run late and Nebraska just wasn't able to recover offensively Uh, of course that was not the case against Indiana Sam Hybe with some amazing finishes and of course Oscars uh, score 82 against Illinois in between those two games so rest of the year Penn State Minnesota Wisconsin Northwestern none of those teams uh, are projected tournament teams according to ESPN's bracketology. Let me just make a double check on Northwestern. Yeah, Northwestern's in the uh, next four out according to ESPN right now. So they're about eight spots or seven spots actually out of the um, last at-large bid. But Nebraska beating Indiana. Indiana currently is a three seed. 
in those projections. Yeah, and then they Michigan, are. Michigan is a two. Yeah. So you know this team is more than capable of going on a run, depending wherever they are. And right now they're set to play Missouri in the opening round as this top seven seed. They get Iowa State. Should Iowa State defeat Holy Cross? So that'd be cool for 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 travel for beat writer purposes. If that really is an Ames, that'd be pretty awesome. I yeah. know that Nebraska is also kind of. I mean, if NET. Uh, if those rankings are any indication, and, and Nebraska really is close to in the committee's eyes a, a top four seed, that would be incredible if Nebraska right. was able to host its own regional. But there needs to be a lot more work. The, to be there would done have on to be front. a serious run in the Big Ten tourney, which the team, like I said, is very, very capable of doing. Yeah. Uh, so we'll have to see. Something we'll have to all watch very closely. Two more home games to come out and support the Huskers: Minnesota and Northwestern. I believe they're both Sunday games. They are. Uh, so a couple of Sunday afternoons you can go spend at PBA watching some good hoops and so that'll do it for our uh, women's basketball discussion coming up next we're going to tackle softball and baseball softball already underway baseball gets going this weekend we'll preview and look back next Welcome back, folks, to Scarlet Fever. Time to get into some spring previews and sort of recaps. Uh, we gave a little bit of a roundup as to softball last week, but the Huskers got in action. Rhonda Ravel in company at the Unidome in northern uh, at, in Cedar Falls, Iowa, this uh, last weekend at the home of the uh, UNI Panthers. And Huskers go 2-3. and three. Lost to three teams. All three of those teams made the tourney last year. Uh, they take down Omaha and Drake. Now they beat Omaha and Drake handily, six to one over the Mavericks, and then ten to one over the Bulldogs. Uh, and then you lose to you and I on a walk off, two to one. That was the second game on Friday. So overall, pretty successful weekend for the Huskers. Of course, you do go below 500, but you played some quality competition. And Abby Squire, my goodness, <laughs> what a weekend for her. Yeah, for real. Named co-Big Ten Player of the Week. It seemed like every other time I was refreshing Twitter to check the scores of the game was Abby Squire had, had made some sort of play with the bat. Um, she was named first the first Big Ten Player of the Week for the 2022 season. She hit 500 in five games with a double, two home runs, and four RBIs. Amazingly, the first two home runs of her career came in the Unidome, so that's fun. Yeah. Uh, hit, slugged 938 and 579 on base percentage, started all five games and left. Um, really impressive, uh, and that's that's going to be a good sign if, if she can get going um, consistently for sure. So right, it's nice it, to see that. It's, it's hard because you have a huge bat to replace, and... And so it's probably going to have to be by committee. Yeah. You know, you, you think back to last year and, you know, with, with Edwards, it was this situation yeah. where her on-base percentage was insane yeah. because teams would just straight up hit her. They would, they would rather hit her with a pitch or intentionally walk her than allow her to hit a home run. God, I forgot all about some of that controversy from last year. Right. That was a mess. <laughs> and and so that would that's that's a huge bat to replace. Now, Abby Squire, great year to start. Lincoln South, uh, she's a Lincoln native too, out of Lincoln Southwest. And so eight hits for her, that was great. Olivia Farrell actually continuing uh, her success at the plate. She was five for twelve. That equates to uh, a, b- a batting average of uh, roughly forty one percent. Uh, .417. Uh, so really good there for her. And then Billy Andrews. Trying to keep off her uh, exciting freshman campaign. She hit 357 with four RBIs. So Huskers doing well out there. Pitching stats, a lot of that pitching will just come down to Kaylin Kinney, who handled the closing duties last year, and then Olivia Farrell and Courtney Wallace, your two starters. Uh, Courtney went 162, uh, 1.62 earned run average, 2-1 and one record, and then Olivia Farrell was a 2.9 and an 0-1 record. 17 strikeouts for Courtney Wallace this last weekend, and then 10 for Olivia Farrell. That equates to on a 8-4-1 uh, to or rather four to one walk to strikeout ratio for Olivia Farrell. 
and then seventeen to five does not really convert very well uh, <laughs> in terms of uh, walks. That's like probably a three, one to three point four. Yeah, something like that. So yeah, yeah. So good, good start for the Huskers this week. Las Cruces, if I remember correctly, in the Troy Cox Classic. Yeah, yes. Las Cruces, New Mexico. Nate Rohr, I believe, is heading down there for Oscar Radio. So, jealous. Very jealous. And a rematch. This one's huge. Rematch Sunday at 10 o'clock against Iowa State. Yes, I was going to say, that's the first thing that, that jumps off the page there when you look at uh, this weekend's slate. That would That's going to be a really good... Um, gauge there to just see where see where see where Nebraska's at. I'm trying to check quick if there are any other tournament teams in that field, and I do not believe there are. Well, and, and so you look at the you know you look. So that would be got. a good opportunity to pick up some wins. Right. Well, they should win all. Four, they should win every game, and then we'll see about Iowa State if they yeah. can avenge that one. But they should win the other four. New Mexico State probably is the most challenging of the four between them, Southeastern Louisiana, UT Arlington, and Northern Colorado. Yeah, one would think, um, especially on their home diamond. But, yeah, it'll be definitely be – it will definitely be interesting to follow along with those results. Um, going 4-0, heading into that Iowa State game would be pretty huge for morale after a, a hard-fought weekend at the Unidome. Oh, well, and then you get the Wupig Sui tournament the next weekend, and, and you get some more D1 uh, opponents there. Kansas, Arkansas twice – uh, Louisville and Southeastern Missouri State, all in Fayetteville. Yeah, and Arkansas, surprise, surprise, Arkansas, very good at softball. Wow, I never would have guessed that one. But, yeah, Arkansas is good. Uh, KU, funny, one of my good friends, shout out, works uh, works on the KU softball team. Oh, there you go. I don't know if they're that good. <laughs> so I get a lot of uh, I get a lot of feedback from him. So that, that would be an opportunity. Two games against Arkansas will be tough. Arkansas had their own regional last year, if I recall correctly, super regional. Uh, so th- th- they're going to be a pretty tough out. But, you know, you're going to get battle-tested early, which I think will be a good team for this team as it looks to make a jump from five. 500 last year to hopefully a winning record and maybe something else down the line this year. And then you get a home triangular in just two weeks. It's yeah. already in March. They're going to have Wichita State coming to town and SDSU. Yeah, and and more against South Dakota State too. So it, it's right. good that, that these these tests are, are, are happening. It's, it seems to be good that, uh, you know, they've, they're putting the schedule together in this manner to – to make sure that this team will be battle-tested. Oh, well, and then the other the thing is play. the uh, official conference ske- uh, schedule does not begin until March 25th. So their schedule starts a little bit later. They'll get Kansas again later in the year. Yeah. They get South Dakota uh, and then Long Beach State in Central a, Florida. Yeah, a little bit of a West Coast swing in there, too, in mid-March in Fullerton when you get Sac State, Cal State, Fullerton, Boston, UCF and Long Beach, and then two games at San Diego. So yeah, there is that we are in the just beginning a lengthy bit of non-conference softball. Huskers are two and three, a good opportunity for some wins and a chance to avenge one of those three losses in the Troy Cox Classic in Las Cruces, New Mexico, this weekend. Be sure to tune to Nate Roar and Company on the Husker Sports Network four o'clock Thursday. This is actually this will be yesterday for you guys, so sorry about that. Uh, you won't be able to listen. 12.30 on Friday, and then uh, a doubleheader on Saturday, 10 a.m. Sunday, the big game against Iowa State. Let's flip over to Husker Baseball as they begin their schedule this weekend. And Will Bolt spoke with the media yesterday ahead of what should be actually a pretty challenging test with Sam Houston State on Friday. And the head coach of the Bearcats, actually a former Husker, it was only for a year that he spent uh, with Nebraska, but he was a teammate of Will Boat, Coach Jay Sirianni, uh, and those two are good friends, and good friends actually, both of the coaching staffs are good friends, and so they'll make a trip down to Texas this weekend. The Bearcats, uh, that'll be exciting. It's going to be cool to see uh, the, the squad get back in action this weekend. Um, in following Bolt's media availability from yesterday, the big talking point, I think one of the the things that, at least from a neutral outsider's perspective, that I was most curious about is what the starting rotation was going yes. to be like. Those questions were answered. It's going to be Kyle Perry Friday. It's going to be Shay Shanneman for game one of the doubleheader Saturday, if I'm correct. And then yep. it's going to be, can't remember the order, but Braxton Bragg and Dawson McCarville rounding out those four. Yeah, Bragg will be Sunday, McCarville on uh, Saturday night. 
Yeah, so the two things I guess that I'm most curious about is Bolt said that it's going to be a 1A, 1B situation uh, between Shannon and Perry. So I'm curious as to, you know, in both of their starts, um, what he's going to be looking for there in order to kind of differentiate where those two are at um, yeah. early on. I, I think the two things for me is both guys are dealing, which is interesting to hear that, uh, you know, from players more so than Coach Bolt. Uh, I I think when you look at what went into the decision this week, it was very clear. I mean, he, he Coach Bolt just straight up said it. He wanted to start with the lefty. He feels like they can create some ma- some matchup issues with a left-handed pitcher on Friday night. Now we'll see how if that you know continues throughout the rest of the season. And the other thing too is that they have they have Shannon going for the seven inning game. Yeah. On on Saturday. And oh, okay. and so I at, see. at first, I see. at first, I was like seven inning. That this this is making sense if you're going with this work. Right. Well, it. it's like at first I thought, okay, McCarville. Okay, maybe you give one of your other guys a seven inning game, and you you let, you know, your your one A one B guy go for the nine inning. I think the the plan here is to have him go the full seven on Saturday if he can do it. And then you can save on pitching because you look at Braxton Bragg on Sunday. That's probably you know it's interesting. It, it, Coach Bolt was very very confident in Braxton Bragg when he spoke about him on Tuesday. That was really interesting to me because Braxton made one start last year. Yeah, and it didn't go very well. No, it was good. Oh, the start was go good. good. Uh, he played. It was against Purdue, and uh, in that game, let me give you those official stats for Bragg because after that he did not. Uh, he did not start again for the rest of the year. That Purdue game, he went four innings, allowed two hits, only one run. It was not earned. I think he made a start a little bit later in the year against Ohio State. That's the one that didn't go well. Or he moved to a bullpen a little bit later. But he played very well against Purdue, did not get an opportunity really to start for the rest of the year and moved to a bullpen role. So it was interesting to hear Will Bolt say that he felt like Braxton has been the most consistent pitcher in their staff. Yeah. That was really interesting. He looked better in fall ball when I when I got to see him him pitch this fall. So to to me, that's very very intriguing to see how he does on Sunday, especially considering his history with this team over the last year. It'll be interesting to see how he's grown and how Nebraska manages bullpen arms ahead of that. They're very deep this year in the pen, but if you have to piece together your game Sunday with the bullpen, you got to hope that Shannon can go you know, six to seven innings in the first game on Saturday, so you don't have to use any other arms. Yeah, it's going to be really fascinating to see how Bill Bolt kind of divvies up his his bullpen arms. You'd have to hope that, uh, God, I can't even remember. Yeah, so I, you'll you'll have to hope that the Channeman can go a, a good bit on on Saturday. My thought process there was, well, maybe if you only throw him four or five innings, not only could he come back later in the weekend, but also make that first start of the uh, next series against TCU. Yes. Give both of those guys an opportunity to be that number one Friday starter. So, it's going to be cool. There, there's a lot of arms to manage, which was a good thing, and I feel like there probably are going to be some hiccups with that early on in the season just because, I mean, that's to be expected. I'm really looking forward to seeing how it progresses though and seeing you know what what situational spots these guys are going to be used and I'm going to be trying to I'll be doing my best to follow along all weekend so yeah it's well be fun to and, see. and so the other idea too is who's the first out of the bullpen you know is it Ornelas just coming here from Texas A&M following Rob Childress uh is it is it Jake Buns Jake yeah. Buns spoke to the media yesterday and Buns said he had added a change up to his repertoire so he's got fastball slider instead of just fastball slider he's got the change up in there as well so how does that look uh who is is it Cody Frank is it Caleb Feakin you know uh Colby Gomez where does he fit in so that that's very interesting to me too we're going to get a lot of those answers this weekend and then the other thing that really sticks out the infield feels very set right you know who's going to be handling the catching uh, you know who's going to be over at first base. That's Jack Style. Griffin Everett's going to be behind home plate. Uh, you go shortstop. That's probably Bryce Matthews. Yeah. Uh, second base, Cam Chick. Third base, Max Anderson. So the infield is pretty set, and I think it's pretty solid. When you go into the outfield, there's some interesting questions, right? Right now, I feel like it's Leighton Banjoff and Luke Sartori out there, but who's the third? And, you know, odds are it's going to be one of the freshmen. And so, is it Luke Jessen who's going to end up end up out there? Uh, I don't know. That's an interesting question that's going to have to be answered this weekend. And how much 
you know, how much trust does Will Bolt put in Luke Banjoff? It seems like they like Luke Sartori a lot because of his speed on the base paths. Uh, and the other thing that was very interesting from Tuesday's media availability, uh, he talked about this. He said, this is, I thought, very interesting. Small ball might not be as big of a part of this team's offensive identity as it has been in years past. That is interesting. Because there are more guys top to bottom in this lineup that can deliver a base hit when you need it. So that was really, really interesting to me to hear because I thought, if anything, you know, you lose Jackson Hallmark, you lose Joe Acker, you lose Spencer Schwellenbach. This team is going to take a step back off offensively. It might just be a different. And it might just be a different look. Yeah, that that will be something to monitor. I, I didn't catch those comments because, I mean, you're right. It was almost a joy as, as a prime baseball historian who, you know, the 2014 and 15 Royals right. were like my favorite teams ever. <laughs> uh, and they did a lot of the things that made Nebraska so successful. Steal a lot of bases, bunt, you know, advance runners in not conventional ways. So that'll be... I guess something something new and a change of pace to see if you know it's it's more about finding gaps and and getting guys on base with with base hits and finding alleyways and things. Um, the fact that it's going to take a little bit of a different approach offensively is kind of nice. And you know there were instances where I mean like in the big moments where Nebraska's offense kind of sputtered a little bit. You know I think about the. The, the games against Arkansas, for example, when there were times where that, that small ball stuff just wasn't necessarily working because the, the top teams in college baseball, like your Arkansas, your SEC schools mainly, are able to, to find creative ways to get around some of that stuff because, you know, they've got the superior fielding talent and they've got the good pitching talent. I don't know. Just they're able to do stuff to, to, to circumvent it. So taking a different approach might be something that could ultimately benefit. But it also still, I mean, even with that offensive approach and the new pieces in, still could lead to some growing pains. Yeah, well, and I and I don't think they're going to go totally away from it. I think that's part of who Will Bolt is and yeah. who he is as a coach, is small ball. And, and the team likes it. The team likes the gritty, not pretty. Yeah. You know, that's part of this team's identity. Uh, we'll see. I mean, maybe they're just going to go out there and just start smashing base hits. We'll find out this weekend. A couple of names to mention in that outfielder uh, contention for that third spot. Luke Jessen talked about him earlier, freshman Elkhorn South. Uh, as you go down the list uh, of those of those potential outfielders, Tyler Palmer, redshirt freshman, Columbus, Garrett Anglum, La Vista, Papillion La Vista, Nebraska, uh, and that is just about it for those for those outfielders. But those are all local guys. And then you think about the bullpen guys who aren't going to even get likely much action this year. Who knows? Actually, they started one of the fall games with Jackson Jelkin out of Bellevue West, so he might actually see more time than any of the, these other names besides. Um, if you go down the rest of the list out of Elkhorn with Drew Christo, son of Dane Christo, former Nebraska football player, and then C.J. Hood out of uh, Norris High School in Hickman, Nebraska. Uh, those guys, you know, it might be actually be Jelkin who committed last out of those those three who gets the most action this year out of the bullpen. But in all likelihood, they have enough arms that we might not even see those three. Now, of course, it's a doubleheader. It's, uh, on Saturday, we'll have more action this weekend. But any of those guys we could see at some point this year. Yeah, I mean... All it, local. It, yeah, I was going to say that if you scroll through the roster, the amount of local talent on this roster is ridiculous. Maybe I just didn't realize it last year, but they really have made a pretty stark commitment to making sure that they're recruiting local guys, and it's going to be neat to see a lot of those local folks have such a big impact on the team this season. I know it's kind of like just a baseline take, but it's just right. something you don't see a lot. So uh, that that's cool and a credit to, to Bolton and his staff for being able to, to hamper down the state's best and... It's going to be nice. Looking forward to baseball season. It's going to be fun to just sit back and watch games on Friday. So all the uh, all you hoity-toity folks who own ESPN+, Plus, you can stream the game at 6.30 on Friday night. Yes, I will. Uh, the rest of the games are not televised. Yet. Uh, but they will all be on Husker Radio Network. Doubleheader on Saturday with Sam Houston, and then Sam Houston on Sunday. That game starts at 1. Seven-inning game, 2 o'clock Saturday, and the full nine-inning contest at 5.30, you can listen to Greg Sharp and uh, Ben McLaughlin over on Husker, the Husker Radio Network. I don't believe Nick Hanley is making the trip down for this one, uh, but we'll see. Uh, I'm Then TCU next week, that's probably the biggest non-conference series, and it's in the second week. So a lot of questions to be answered, and we'll have those answers for you next week Excuse me, on Scarlet Fever. We're going to wrap up the show coming up next. 
with a look at the Big Ten men's basketball standings. It is another fantastic week coming off an even better week uh, last week. So we'll break all that down next. Welcome back to Scarlet Fever. Time to wrap up the show. And we're going to do something uh, a little bit fun. We're just going to look at the Big Ten men's basketball standings and give you an idea, a lay of the land, uh, as it were. Racketology releases every Tuesday and Friday on ESPN, according to Joe Lenardi. So uh, those of you listening on Friday, you will have a game, or rather, you will have a better idea, actually, than us of what that uh, field looks like. But uh, the Big Ten has seven teams projected in the tournament, or goodness, the tournament right now. Iowa is the last of those teams at a seven seed. But Michigan and Rutgers and Northwestern, even though Northwestern's path is probably the hardest of those three by a long shot, all have chances to maybe snag an at-large bid uh, here down the way. Michigan is the second of the first four out in the most recent projection. Memphis being the first team out. Memphis is probably going to move in in this next ranking after last night. And then uh, Rutgers is the first of the next four out. So Rutgers is also climbing. And uh, what a week for Rutgers. I mean, that's probably the biggest story really in the Big Ten. They have another big game as we record this on Wednesday tonight against Illinois. That one's at home. You know, I and I mentioned this in the rankings that will come out on Friday, but if you had told me, or really anybody, ahead of the Northwestern game in which they lost 79-78 on the road to the Wildcats, that in the next series of games in which they played five ranked teams in a row, they would go above 500 in that stretch and they would win the first three, I would have been shocked. But they've done it. They've taken down Michigan State, Ohio State, and Wisconsin. Now they get Illinois tonight as we record on Wednesday. Rutgers, I love it. It's so They're just so awesome. You can't put them away. I mean, the win at Wisconsin, like, holy cow. That, that was, was just like a huge, like, totally uncharacteristic, like, Rutgers renaissance. A like, road win. Yeah, a road win against a ranked top 15 team, I think, Wisconsin. Uh, Close yeah, to they're top, top fifteen. Top fifteen team, like that is such a huge barometer of like holy cow, this Rutgers team might be a little bit different. Because I mean, that's not a game that Rutgers wins. Even two right. years ago, even when Rutgers was kind of operating at peak powers before the pandemic, like that would have been a pretty insane ask for that team to go and win. So, I mean, it's awesome, and it just goes to show you, like how you can never, ever, 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 ever bury a team in November or December. I mean, you, you mentioned Memphis. That's another example of, of that happening, too. Rutgers in November lost at DePaul, at home to Lafayette, who ranks 319th on Ken Palm, and at UMass. Three pretty poor losses. DePaul, not so much, but Lafayette and UMass are two really bad losses that are ultimately going to probably do some harm to Rutgers' resume down the line, but I mean, they're doing their damnedest to make up for it. Those three wins against Michigan State, Ohio State, Wisconsin are incredible, even if it doesn't come away with a win over Illinois tonight, which, I mean, who knows? Anything can happen at the rack, but it might not happen, and that's okay because they've been on this torrid stretch. Um, It's just been really cool to see, uh, especially because Rutgers is finally having a tertiary scorer emerge. We talked about this a little bit, but Paul Mulcahy is still he's a really great. He's he's just been ter- he's been kind of lighting the world on fire in recent weeks. And if Rutgers can get some reliable scoring behind Harper and Baker, it will be really dangerous because, you know, last season it was kind of like. Harper and Baker, and then just, like, whatever else. Like, maybe they'd get five points here or four points there. If they can get a reliable 10 to 12 points a game from Paul Mulcahy, I mean, heck, even more 18. If they can get reliable scoring from him, this is all of a sudden a really dangerous team with lots of length, lots of athleticism. Um, you know, the, the bench concerns me a little bit and, and their depth, but it's a really athletic team. It's a team that can 
cause some pressure and havoc defensively. Um, they're really likable and they're really fun to watch. I'm really rooting for them down the stretch. You know, in terms of what they need to accomplish from here, a win over Illinois and or Purdue would be nice. Um, but there's still plenty of opportunity remaining on this schedule at Michigan, home against Wisconsin, away at Indiana, and then Penn State. And from there, you also probably are going to need to win a game or two in Indy. I, I think if they win their two home, their home games, they're in. I, if they take down Illinois, yeah. Wisconsin, and Penn State, I think they have a really good no, shot. No, I, I would agree with you. I, I do think that. And I, I think they'll get one of Michigan or Indiana. Yeah, I mean... I, I, I would agree with you. I think Rutgers is definitely trending um, upwards for sure. I mean, nine nine Big Ten wins is remarkable uh, considering well, and where that they was, were entering conference play. And so there's the other adage, right, that if you win double-digit wins, get to double-digit wins in the Big Ten, you're almost a lock. Yeah, but at the same time, you They're also have those so losses. <laughs> to, the the <laughs> loss to, to UMass and Lafayette back-to-back are yep. just awful and – Oh, man, Rutgers, you are just a confusing, confusing bunch, aren't you? But they need to get to 10 or 11 wins. I think they can do it, but I also think they need—they definitely need that little added package of winning a game in Indy, especially because I don't know what their NET is, but I, I would doubt it's very high. So, right. So I think that in terms of getting in better favor in the committee's eyes, it, it needs to do a little bit more work. As impressive as the resume already is, um, it ultimately shot itself in the foot so bad in the non-con that it needs to do a little bit more. Let's talk a little bit about another team that's heading in a totally different direction, Indiana, who Ugh. since they're amazing and Certainly, best win of the year against Purdue, 68-65. They have lost <laughs> off five the of cliff. the last seven, and their wins are Penn State and Maryland. Lost to Illinois, lost to Northwestern, Michigan State, Wisconsin. They have Ohio State on the docket later this weekend. This team is headed south, and it might bungle its way out of the tourney. I think that there's a very good chance. I mentioned selling Ohio State stock. I would like to officially sell all my Indiana stock. Not only has there been a four-game losing streak for the Hoosiers, it's also come with that added, you know, murkiness of the the you know what was it five players getting suspended yep. right before Northwestern for a violation of team rules. I really do think that this is a team that's just super dysfunctional right now. It was perhaps no more evident than the last possession of the game against Wisconsin. And with Indiana down three, uh, they even call a timeout if I remember, if memory serves to to sort out a play with 17 seconds left, and it basically it basically was just everyone standing around the perimeter while I think it was Xavier Johnson that was just dribbling around the ball and hucked up a three that didn't even hit the rim. Yep. It was oh, it was super bad and kind of an indictment of where <laughs> this team is at currently, and. Fortunately for it, but does the schedule get much easier? I mean, no, and for them, the thing that is good is that they have a six-day um, pause to yes. prepare for a game at Ohio State. That's a big game. That's yep. going to be something that Indiana desperately needs in order to get back on track a little bit. But the good news is after that, you have Maryland-Minnesota, two games that are probably pretty winnable, um, and then Rutgers and the return game of the Purdue series. So, so, it, it, to, so when I look at that, I don't know. When I look at that stretch. To me, there are at least two losses on there. No, yeah, I would. They're going to lose to either Rutgers or Ohio State, and they're going to lose to Purdue. Yeah, so Purdue's going to kill them. <laughs> you you win Maryland and Minnesota, and you lose those three, or uh, you lose two more. You at best you're five hundred. Yeah, it gets it gets dicey as a, that's another team that definitely needs to accomplish something in Indy because if it doesn't, oof, that's going to be. Really disappointing for excuse me for an Indiana team that entered the season with a lot of expectations under Mike Woodson. You have Trace Jackson Davis back. You have Race Thompson who's starting to play really well. Uh, Indiana's going to go as far as its guard play takes it, and right now its guard play has been just horrendous. Um, so yeah, that's going to be Indiana's issue down the stretch, and we'll see if they're going to be able to shake it. I kind of don't think they will. Two more teams to zone in on here. Uh, we can't hit them all. Michigan State is not one of the teams that I'm going to mention them here. They are an honorable mention. Uh, that's the team that's sinking. Lost to Penn State last night. That was not a good loss uh, by any stretch of the imagination. Uh, Got to talk Purdue. Purdue had a kind of a weird week. Uh, that's kind of a red flag. Some warning signs. They're still at the top of my list. We'll see was because Wisconsin's kind of in the same stretch. The only team that's really in the top half of the league that's hot right now really teams are Illinois and Rutgers that are going to play 
Wednesday night. Uh, but when you look at Ohio State, that's a team you just mentioned, and then we'll talk about Iowa afterwards. Ohio State is a team that should, in all likelihood, be a lock for the tourney at this point. But you look at their last few games, and they have more games than anybody else just because of reschedules. Uh, Iowa, Indiana, Illinois, Maryland, Nebraska, Michigan State, Michigan. There's some good opportunities here, but there's the added pressure of having to play every two or three days. That could pose issue for Ohio State, especially because it's still a team I'm not. My personal jury is out. Big win at Michigan over the weekend. That was that changed my view on them a little bit, but I still have some, some overarching issues with um, Ohio State in terms of what are they outside of, of EJ Liddell. Right now, to me, there's just not enough consistency outside of him and he has been spectacular he was incredible incredible against um incredible against Michigan he had 28 points he had a lot of key buckets down the stretch uh he was great but to me it's gonna the Ohio State kind of like Indiana is gonna go as far as its guards take it as we enter like March Ohio State has a lot of inexperience there. Um, Jamari Wheeler has been at Penn State for a while and is a Big Ten veteran, but not necessarily a veteran of the NCAA tournament or advancing for the Big Ten tournament. Outside of that, it's a lot of unproven scoring options. You know, uh, Justin Arns has been a guy that hasn't been as productive as they probably would have liked entering the season, nor Kyle Young. Uh, Ohio State is a team that is still going to be really tricky to figure out, and if its depth and rotational pieces don't show up, it could cause big time issue if they're doing a, a Nebraska and playing every other night. I mean, Ohio State doesn't have more than th- like 3 days rest for any of these games the rest of the season. So, if things spiral, the Buckeyes could be in a little bit of trouble and potentially I don't know where they're at currently as, as far as a projected seed in the NCAA tournament. I would probably imagine around the 5 or the 6 line, a 5. So that they're a team that could could is kind of in danger of maybe dropping a line or two. Um, you know, it Yeah, that's going to be a team that's going to be really interesting to monitor over the coming weeks. Lastly here, another team that uh, is very interesting to me and is in danger of dropping a line or two, Iowa. They won their last three, and they got that game against Ohio State postponed, and they were in a dangerous stretch where they lost three of four. Now you look at the rest of their schedule, and they have, here's what I think they need to do to avoid dropping a line, and if they want to go up, they got to accomplish this as well. Ohio State, Michigan, Illinois are the only ranked teams left on the schedule. They need two of those three, and they need to split their last two games against Michigan. That's a home and home. Yeah, I would I would agree. My personal jury, I, you know, I, I'm so negative on a lot of these Big Ten teams. Fine, I I am a I have been an Iowa disliker for years. Um, I think that this team is like similar to some of their other teams. I think that they have a lot of scoring talent. I think that they are very efficient offensively. I question the toughness and the defensive intensity when I when I think about the Iowa Hawkeyes. I question their ability to rebound. I question their ability to consistently slow down some of the Big Ten's top offenses. I question their ability to be able to battle when things get chippy and turn into a little bit of a rock fight, a la the 48-46 loss at Rutgers. I have my questions about Iowa still, and it's nice beating like the Penn States, the Minnesotas, the Marylands, and the Nebraskas of the world, but things are about to get real interesting yes. for Fran McCaffrey's team here once again down the stretch pretty much a game a game against Nebraska aside that's a pretty imposing slate to close the season and you know even even still coming to Pinnacle Bank Arena won't be a super fun time I would imagine so I've got questions about Iowa I've got questions about Iowa's backcourt in particular Jordan Bohannon is taking over point guard duties again um yeah, I just, I just, I have my reservations about Iowa specifically defensively, and they're going to be tested because, especially having two games with Michigan, that's a team that's really hungry to make a statement and fight its way back into the NCAA tournament. That game is on Thursday night. That's going to be both of those games are going to be very, very, I'm sure, physical and very, very hotly contested. Well, there you go. There's a look at some of the teams in the Big Ten. Michigan State coming up with a upset loss to Penn State on Tuesday. Uh, you also have Wisconsin with a big, big win over Indiana. Johnny Davis, fantastic, magnifico. Yeah. Uh, and then uh, tonight, as we record on Wednesday, Illinois Rutgers. There are big games throughout the rest of the week as well. The Big Ten always delivers. We'll keep you updated as 
Now, all those yeah. things develop on a week-to-week basis. Yeah, and of note, be sure to monitor, I believe it is Saturday. I remember it being Sunday in the past, but this Saturday, the NCAA Tournament Selection Committee is going to reveal its top 16 seeds should the tournament be on that Saturday. So right. that's going to be something to monitor too. Make sure to keep an eye out for the Big Ten teams that will be listed in that bunch. I'm sure there will be a couple of them uh, at least among Illinois, Purdue, and Wisconsin. So that's going to be something to keep an eye out for as well on, on Saturday to see where the committee kind of sees some of the Big Ten's top teams as we enter the last couple weeks of the season. That'll do it for us here on Scarlet Fever. I'm Grant Hanson. He's Landon Word. You can go follow Landon on Twitter at L-A-N-D-O-N-W-I-R-T. For me, it's at Hanson15 underscore Hanson, H-A-N-S-E-N underscore, or sorry, 15 underscore Hanson. We'll be back next week with updates on Husker softball, Husker baseball, and the field for both Husker men's and women's hoops. So thank you so much for joining us. This has been Scarlet Fever.